So we come now to the proclamation of God's word. And this, if I did my math and counted right, which can be asking a lot, math is not my favorite, uh, but I believe this is our 70th week, 70th sermon in the Gospel of Matthew. That's been a long, long journey. Hopefully it's been a blessing as we see that Jesus is this great king, but he is great because he is also compassionate and loving and redeems his people. Our sermon text this morning is Matthew 27, verses 11 through 26. It is in your worship folder if you want to follow along with the reading. And so we read these words from God's word to us. Now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. And Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feasts, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Having not, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and he washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. And then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him up to be crucified. So ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Let us pray. Father, we ask now that you would work through your word as it is proclaimed, that your voice would speak to the hearts of your people to encourage them in the gospel so that you might be glorified and that you would speak to those who are not so that you would give them life that they may too be named amongst your sons and daughters. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. How do you make things right in this world when there is so much wrong in it? That is a question I think that all of us ask in some way, shape, or form at some point. How do you make things right when there is so much that is wrong? And we ask it because it's, it's obvious. This world 
truly is a mess. Everything is backwards and upside down and sideways. The effect of the fall is felt inwardly and outwardly, emotionally and psychologically, spiritually and physically, individually and communally. We are all sinners who sin, surrounded by other sinners who sin, and we hurt and we damage and we destroy each other each and every day. And so everywhere you look, everything is wrong. How do you make it right? We ask that because if you're like me, you're tired of it. I'm tired of it. I'm tired of my own sin and my own failure. I'm tired of the sin and the failure of others. I'm tired of the evil I see in the world. Well, the Gospel of Matthew, it is the real life story of how God, through Jesus, makes everything right again. From chapter 1 onward, it has been a narrative of hope. A narrative of hope That God has come and dwelt among us in the person of Christ so that people who live in darkness, who live in this wrong, see a great light. That light is the grace of salvation coming into the world as the kingdom of heaven breaks into the darkness of the kingdom of this world. Everything wrong can be and is being made right again. But for that to truly happen, the greatest of evils must have its day in court and win, at least for a moment. And that is what our text shows us this morning. It is, it is the wronging of the Son of God. We see here how all the sideways backwards, twisted, and messed up world appears to have victory at least for a moment. It looks as if Jesus is defeated, that good is done, that evil has won. And Satan stands in the corner sneering over all of it. First, we see the wrong judgment is made. Jesus' hearing before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high court, has been completed. And he has been sentenced. The verdict is he must die. But for that to happen, there must be Roman approval for they are the true authority in the land. And so Jesus must stand arraigned before the Roman governor of the province of Judea. And back in verse 1 of Matthew 27, we read that the chief priests and the elders, the Sanhedrin, they bind him, they lead him away, and they delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Now Pontius Pilate, he, he governed Judea from around A.D. 26 to 37. He was not a popular governor of the province amongst the Jewish people because of his many heavy-handed policies of imposing Roman authority and his complete disregard for the way of life, especially the life of worship of the people. I mean, among his harsh actions was a decision to move Roman standards, Roman like a Roman flag, which had on them the image of the emperor, 
and hang them within the city of Jerusalem, even near the temple. No prior governor had done this, and so it angers the people because it violates the first and second commandment of the law to to have no other gods before them and to make uh, no images of any creature. And so the people then, they send a delegation to um, Pilate, who was at that time in Caesarea, where he was ruling from, and they asked him, hey, can you please remove these from the city of Jerusalem? They plead with him for five days. And Pilate's response is, he sends Roman soldiers into that group with orders to draw their swords and cut the people down if they do not disperse. And the people, they don't disperse. They actually lay down, expose their necks and say, well then kill us. We would rather be dead than have you violate our ways and the law of God. And that is the first among many conflicts that Pilate has with the people of Judea. And they prove him to be a cruel and inept leader. But that is the man who now sits in a judgment seat to decide the fate of God's Holy Son. And it feels so wrong because it is. Now, as we read this story, this narrative we might be tempted to think that, well, Pilate seems like perhaps he's trying to do the right thing here, that he's, he's trying to act righteously. Maybe he's trying to redeem himself. He has a chance to do the right thing, render the right verdict. I mean, when Jesus is brought for him, we, we see he's reluctant to condemn him to death. In fact, we're told that Jesus' silence to the charges brought against him by the, the chief priests and the elders, it amazes Pilate. That means that Jesus had a favorable impression upon him. He doesn't think that Jesus is worthy of death. Pilate also tries to use amnesty to, to spare Jesus' life. He had this custom, we're told, of releasing political prisoners to gain popular influence during certain feast days. So why not use that moment then to release Jesus? After all, the charges brought before Jesus were fake. They were bogus. Pilate was canny enough to see that it was envy that drove the religious and civil leaders to to try to convict Jesus and put Him to death. And then we have this matter of Pilate's wife's dream in which she warns him to have nothing to do with Jesus. Again, we read in verse 19, besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. At this time in history, the ancient people uh, viewed dreams with high authority. And in Matthew's Gospel, we, we've seen other dreams used by God to communicate to people. I mean, Joseph was told in a dream when he discovered that Mary was pregnant with Jesus, not to dismiss her, but to take her as his wife because the child she carried was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was Emmanuel, God with us. The Magi were warned in a dream as well. Uh, to not go back to Herod after they encountered Christ, lest they face His wrath uh, for the fact that Jesus had been born a king. 
And the common theme we see in those dreams in Matthew's gospel is that they are sent by God as a means of communicating something about Jesus to people. Now, God doesn't do that ordinarily today, and the reason He doesn't is because we have a better word of prophecy. We have the completed word of God given to us in the Scriptures. We don't need a dream. But while God's word was still being completed, He at times would use dreams to communicate His truth. Even in situations where everything seems to be going wrong, like this Roman trial, God does not leave Himself out of the picture. He is there, always working through the suffering, through the pain, through the corruption, through the heartache, unfolding His perfect and holy and loving plans in His sovereign power. And we sometimes feel that God is silent, but He is never silent, and He was not silent here. What does God reveal to Pilate through his wife's dream regarding Jesus? Well, that Jesus is righteous, that He is holy, that there is no stain of sin upon Him. He had never committed any wrong. He had done no evil. While there were many witnesses speaking against Christ at that trial, there was still a witness that spoke for Him. It was God the Spirit testifying that God the Son is the Righteous One. And despite that though, despite the testimony of God in a special way to Pilate, despite the fact that he was able to see through the envy of the religious leaders of the Jewish people, despite that, he still rules against Christ. He let a righteous man, an innocent man, go to his death. Why? Because he wanted something that he didn't have. He wanted something he did not deserve. He wanted the praise of the people so that he might have power over them. And many a ruler of men has coveted the praise of others so highly that they are willing to do anything to achieve it, even take an innocent life. Pilate's envy of the people's praise led him to condemn Jesus to death in full knowledge that there was no evidence that Jesus had committed any crime. Pilate, Pilate, he was not innocent in this ruling, though he publicly tried to appear that he was, which is why we get the whole scene of him taking a bowl of water and washing his hands before the crowd as if somehow he can abdicate his responsibility in Jesus' death. It is nothing more than an act of theater. By giving the people what they want He believes he is taking a hold of what he wants, that power, that control through the favor of the people. And so there he sits in judgment, an unrighteous, wicked man over the perfect judge of heaven and earth. Jesus, who will one day judge all the world, stands under the corrupt judgment of a petty earthly prince. The wrong judgment was made. Jesus was condemned to die, though He did no crime and knew no sin. 
Which brings us to the second wrong we see in this text that is committed against Christ, and that is that wrong charges were filed. That's where this started in the first place. The charges were brought by the chief priests and the elders of the people. Uh, We considered briefly Jesus' trial before the Sanhedrin a couple of weeks ago when Jesus is brought into Caiaphas' house, Caiaphas being the high priest. And there they try to bring false witness after false witness. And the law stated that two witnesses had to agree if it was to be evidence against against someone. And of course, it's difficult when you're making up uh, lies about somebody. It is hard to get two people to agree. But they finally managed to do that. And the charge is brought against Jesus that he has committed blasphemy against God and his temple. But a charge of mere blasphemy against God wouldn't be enough to convince the Romans to approve an execution. They really didn't care about the religious matters of the Jewish people. And so they had to have other charges. And they tried to make Jesus then appear as a troublemaker, a terrorist, an insurrectionist who sought to overthrow Roman rule and build his own kingdom. This was a turbulent time in Judea. There were small rebellions popping up in different parts of Palestine that would eventually lead to the rise of a party known as the Zealots in 66 AD. And the Zealots, of course, brought much bloodshed to the region, going to war with Rome, eventually resulting in Titus' siege of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And so it's easy then, with all this turmoil, to bring a charge against Jesus to claim that, hey, Pilate, this is one of those insurrectionists, one of those traitors, one of those troublemakers who want to see you overthrown. After all, he's called himself the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed of God, our King. He has unashamedly preached the gospel of His kingdom. He said things like, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He taught what life was like in His kingdom and how citizens of His kingdom are to live. And so if they can make Him to be a terrorist, an insurrectionist, a would-be king, if they could make that charge stick, then Rome would have to execute Him on the cross. And so Pilate, with that accusation, those charges in mind, he asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus, of course, is the king of the Jews. He is the son of David. He is fulfilling that covenant promise of a king who would reign over God's people for all eternity. And so he says, you have said so. He's agreeing. He is the king of the Jews, but he is not just the king of the Jews. He is the king over Pilate as well. But he isn't the kind of king that Pilate has in mind. He isn't the kind of king he is being accused of. He wasn't a tyrant who had come to tear down Rome and establish his own physical kingdom in the land. 
In John's Gospel account of this trial before Pilate, Christ responds to Pilate very clearly and he says this to him in John 18, 36. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. See, Jesus was the Prince of Peace coming into the world so that we might have peace. As God spoke through Isaiah the prophets in Isaiah 9, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government, that is authority, power to rule, shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace. There will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That is Christ. But now this one whose government is peace stands charged with high treason by traitorous men. And so Pilate says, do you not hear the many things they testify against you? And Jesus gives him no answer. He is silent to every single charge. The wrong charges were being brought against Jesus, as Pilate notes, out of envy. See, the chief priests... And the elders of the people wanted what they did not deserve. Just as Pilate wanted what he did not have, the praise of the people, the religious and civil Jewish leaders wanted what they did not have, but Jesus did the authority, the power of heaven. And there are many sins when we look upon them we instantly recognize them as sin. And that is because the destructive consequences are so upfront and evident to us. I mean, murder destroys a life. Adultery destroys a home. Lying destroys trust and relationships. But there are other sins that escape our sense of moral perception so as to not seem as dangerous as the others. And envy is one of those sins. I mean, it sits... And the hollows of our heart hiding there, longing for those things God has not given us and believing that if we had them, our lives would be so much improved. We often think of envy as wanting those things which others have. But in reality, what it is, it is wanting what God has not given and many times what He has forbidden. It's based on the assumption that I deserve more than what my Creator has given me. It's envy that makes us think that we are gods unto ourselves. As a mere desire, envy and its cousins, covetousness and jealousy, they can seem rather mild. They feel as almost that they are victimless sins. After all, Oftentimes they don't lead to anything. They just sit within our hearts. But no sin is victimless. It's because of the sin of envy that our lives often go sideways and lead us to wrong others in soul-crushing ways. 
And at the beginning of human history, envy brought great pain into this world. I mean, from a simple desire to have something that God had not forgiven, that forbidden fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, from that desire comes the curse of sin upon all creation. And envy was there when everything went wrong. Little wonder then that envy's cruel claws are still sunk deep into the crucifixion of Jesus Christ in this moment. For it was out of envy that Jesus did not get what He truly deserved, adoration and trust, for He is the King. And it was out of envy that Jesus got what He did not deserve, lying accusations that led to His death on the cross. Which leads us to the third terrible wrong committed against God the Son. And that is this. The wrong Jesus was chosen. The wrong judgment was made because the wrong charges were brought and as a result, the wrong Jesus is chosen. Coming now to Pilate's custom of granting amnesty, we learn here in verse 16 that they had a notorious prisoner named Barabbas. And as the people gather outside Pilate's place of judgment, he asks them, what do you, or who do you want me to release to you then? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? Who is this Barabbas? Well, the only information we have from history is contained within the Gospels. And here's what we learn. Mark identifies him as an insurrectionist and a murderer. He is one of those terrorists trying to overthrow Roman rule. And here in Matthew, we learn that he was a notorious criminal. We also know in the Gospels that there were others in prison with Barabbas who were awaiting execution upon a cross. His... his, uh, his henchmen, those who worked with him. And the two criminals who would hang on a cross on either side of Jesus were also these violent insurrectionists. Now, in the earliest Greek manuscripts of the New Testament, we get Barabbas' full name. You know what his name is? He is named Jesus Barabbas. Later Greek manuscripts probably had that edited out uh, because some early Christians did not like anybody else going by the name Jesus other than Christ Jesus himself. And so that is why you don't see it in many English translations today. So what Pilate is offering up here to the people is a choice between two Jesuses. Jesus Barabbas or Jesus Christ. That's why he even asked the people, what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? Because Jesus who is called Barabbas will be released. Irregardless though, if Barabbas' name was altered in some of the ancient manuscripts of the New Testament, what is clear, whether it's there or not, is that What is being offered up to the people here is a choice between two messiahs, two saviors. One tried to save the people from Roman tyranny through violence and insurrection, and the other has come to save them from the tyranny of their own sin. 
So who will the people choose? The Jesus who promised them rest from all the wrong of this world, declaring, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Or would they choose the Jesus that answered tyranny with tyranny, violence with violence, injustice with injustice. Well, as we see, they chose Barabbas. They chose the wrong Jesus. Like many people today, they chose the wrong Savior. They chose the Jesus they wanted rather than the Jesus they needed. Not only did they choose the wrong Jesus, though, but they cry for the blood of the right one. R.T. Friends notes that this crowd was not just pro-Barabbas, but they were anti-Jesus. They hated him. They wanted him dead. Responding to Pilate's question about what should be done with Jesus, they respond in anger as their cry echoes through the streets, let him be crucified. And the unpleasantness of this scene is amplified by two things. One, first, crucifixion was not the way Hebrew people carried out their executions. It was considered an abomination, barbaric, and foreign to them. To die on a tree was to be cursed. But here they are crying out louder and louder for Jesus' crucifixion. And in doing that, they are crying out that God would curse Him. Secondly, it's not unthinkable that there were some people present in that riotous crowd who less than a week earlier had cried out, Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord as Jesus entered the city in His triumphal entry. But there they are now, so quickly having been persuaded that He is a false Messiah and they call for His death. I mean, during the triumphal entry, the praise of Jesus and the acclamation he received was so great that it would have felt that he had no enemies if you had been there. But now, before Pilate's judgment seat, the crowd is so hostile and bloodthirsty and crying for his death that you think he would have no friends. The people had chosen the wrong Savior. And in doing so, They have sealed their fate. They wanted Jesus to be cursed by God, but in doing that, they brought that very curse upon themselves. You see, when you choose the wrong Christ, the wrong Jesus, and you look to another another Messiah, whatever it it may be or whoever it may be, you choose to be cursed by Almighty God. And that sounds heavy, that sounds harsh, but it is the gut-wrenching reality that is laid out for us through all of the Scriptures. You can choose Jesus Christ, you can look to Him, or you can look to another Savior. But if you look to another, if you choose the wrong Jesus, 
then God's covenant curse falls upon you. Because you see, God is always faithful to His Word. He must fulfill it. And if you reject His covenant mercy in Jesus, you face His holy wrath. And we see that portrayed in this very narrative in a horrifying and appalling way as we come to the end. Pilate tries to remove his involvement, as we've already noted, by symbolically washing his hands. And of course, that was empty theater. You cannot remove the stain of your own sin. And then the people respond to Pilate and they call the curse of down not just upon themselves, but in a cruel and selfish and evil twist, they call it down upon their own children. Matthew 27, 25, as we read there, all the people answered, His blood be upon us and on our children. Now there is something very familiar in those chilling words. It's familiar because we have seen, even in when we do baptisms, that God's covenant promise is not just for us, but for our children. What is that covenant promise summarized in the Gospel? It is, I will be a God to you and to your children after you. In Galatians 3, the Apostle Paul explains that Jesus is the fulfiller of that promise. That God becomes our God to us and our children. But here, the people call for a contra promise. They call for a curse. We don't want this Messiah. We don't want this One whom You have sent to fulfill the covenant promise for us and for our children We don't want you to be a God to us in our our children. So let the curse of the Messiah fall upon us and our children after us. If this is your Messiah, we don't want Him. Curse us and our families. The sad thing is, is that God must give them just as they ask for Barabbas is released. Jesus is beaten with a Roman whip and He is sent away to be crucified. The wrong Messiah was chosen because the wrong charges were brought and the wrong judgment was made. And all of this because Pilate and the priests and the people pursued which they did that which they didn't deserve. Praise and power and glory for themselves. It sure seems like evil is winning That wrong is triumphing. But it wasn't. And here's why. Because as you look at this and all the wrong that is being poured out upon Jesus, the Son of God, know this. Jesus gave up what He deserved so that He can give you what you do not deserve. Jesus gave up what He deserved, praise and glory and honor, so that He could give us what we don't deserve. What we deserve is that curse of God. 
but he was willing to suffer it for us. Jesus, just as Pilate asked him, is a king. He is the king. He deserves that all people everywhere bow their knees before him. He deserves the praise of the people that Pilate sought after. He deserves the power that belongs to him and that he demonstrated again and again that those uh, chief priests and elders wanted. He deserves our utmost devotion. And we don't deserve that kind of praise, that kind of power. We don't deserve any of it. What we truly deserve is what happened to Jesus. For we have sinned against God in thought and word and deed. We we have mocked His holy name by the way we live and what we think and what we do and what we say. Everything that is wrong in this world is wrong because of us. We made it like this. And we should have to pay the consequences for all that wrongdoing. Perhaps you may say, though, ah, but if I were Pilate sitting at that judgment seat, I would have released the right Jesus. If I were in the crowd, I would have called out for Barabbas to be crucified, not Jesus. But no, you wouldn't. Because every single day when we break God's word and do what we want, we are calling for Barabbas. We are choosing the wrong Jesus. We are choosing ourselves. We can't stand and pour water over our hands like Pilate and proclaim that we are somehow innocent of all the wrongdoing that fell upon Christ. We deserve the death that Jesus died. We deserve the eternal judgment of God unleashed upon every one of us. For we have all in sin cried, let His blood be upon us and our children. But Jesus didn't deserve any of that. And yet He suffered all of it so that we don't suffer what we deserve. We are forgiven of all that wrongdoing. That is the Gospel. You see, everything wrong happened to Jesus so that He could make everything right again. Jesus' rejection that day by the people of Jerusalem opened the way for a new nation, a new kingdom made up of people from all nations, Jew and Gentile, man and woman, rich and poor, young and old. The nation, the kingdom of God. His people. As Isaiah wrote, Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level. The rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Everything wrong is being made right because Jesus was willing to suffer everything that is wrong for us. So you don't have to try to make things right. You can't. But you can look to Him who did and who is. And one day, that mission will be complete. And we will see Him for who He is. So we stand before Him to give Him what He does deserve. Our worship. 
for he is our glorious Savior. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do come before you humbled by the fact that if we had stood in that crowd, we would have chosen the wrong Jesus. And yet, despite that choice, you and your mercy and grace choose to save us. You and your sovereign wisdom choose us even before we are born, before this world was created, so that we might be known by you through Christ our Lord, who suffered these terrible wrongs to make everything right in our lives for his name's sake. And so, Father, I pray that you would encourage us, that we would not be discouraged by our sin but we would confess it and fall before Him who deserves all glory and honor. And that we would rise rejoicing because we now have peace with You. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.